Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This is part four of Partisans, Irish Stories from the Spanish Civil War, a series created by myself, Finn Wire, and Stuart Redden. The first three episodes of the series have given context to the war and the scene in Ireland in the 1930s. In this show, we travel to Spain for the opening phase of the war in the summer of 1936. We follow the story of the famous Irish revolutionary, Padre O'Donnell, who was in Spain and almost by accident was caught up in the opening stage of the conflict. Set to the backdrop of a coup and revolution, O'Donnell vividly describes what he saw from the perspective of someone inspired by the anti-fascist cause. In this podcast, we will also hear the perspective of someone who saw events very, very differently. That's the Irish priest Alexander McCabe, who was also living in Spain throughout the 1930s. This is the last episode of Partisans in 2019. In the next few weeks, myself and Stuart will be busy preparing the next stage of the series, which will return in January 2020. I will try and have a bonus episode out before the end of the year, but in case I don't, I would like to thank all the patrons who have supported the show through 2019. This podcast is exclusively supported by their generosity at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. They fund the research, the writing and everything else required to make this podcast possible. So I am really, really grateful for that. I would also like to mention the badges and pins that are now available at irishhistorypodcast.ie shop. These are a series of six enamel and metal badges that depict six major figures from Irish history over the last thousand years. You'll recognise loads of them from the podcast series over the years, but check them out now at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Finally, just before we start the show, it's important to say that this podcast relied on two key texts. That's the book Salud by Padre O'Donnell and the Salamanca Diaries by Tim Fanning. Narrations in the podcast are by Oliver Farry, Finbar Cafferkey and Paul Walker Emig. Paul is the host of a podcast called Utopian Horizons, which covers a different utopia, dystopia or utopian thinker in each episode. All that said, let's begin. In the summer of 1936, 
Heather and Lil O'Donnell were a somewhat unusual couple in the Spanish holiday resort of Stitches. There was no question that the O'Donnells could hold conversation with any of the other tourists, but given their history and life experience, they didn't quite belong. Sitges in the 1930s was a haven for the wealthy of Europe. Located about 40 kilometres from Barcelona, it overlooked a beautiful coast known as the Golden Beach. One Spanish newspaper reported how magnificent, comfortable hotels and the varied number of villas offered the traveller all the elements that he needs for his absolute rest. This luxury was matched by the town's famous racetrack, which attracted international race competitions. However, it was certainly not the place you might expect to find one of the most well-known Irish revolutionaries of his generation, Pather O'Donnell. The O'Donnells had come to Spain for a holiday to relax, but also reflect on their future. Pather, in particular, had reached a crossroads where life as he had known it for the past 20 years seemed to be at an end. Only in his mid-forties he had already lived an extraordinary life. He had been born in Mean Moor, in the Rosses in West Donegal, in a world that was unimaginably different from the Spanish holiday resort he found himself in during the summer of 1936. His family had been poor tenants on the estate of the Marcus of Conningham. O'Donnell remembered how it was a very harsh kind of a world. Men went to Scotland for the summer having put in the crop and cut the turf. Women worked very hard. They reaped oats and dug the potatoes. It was a gay life, but a hard life. In spite of this poverty, O'Donnell rose to prominence as a leading member of the IRA in the northwest of Ireland during the War of Independence, which began an extraordinary political career. After Irish independence, he remained in the IRA, participating in the Civil War, although he spent much of the conflict in prison. It was there he had come into contact with his future wife, Lil, who came from a very wealthy family. Although they had never met, the two corresponded while he was in prison and were married on his release. Given Lil's wealthy background, the two had no financial difficulties and Pather was able to devote large amounts of his time to politics. Remaining in the IRA in the 1920s, he served as editor of the organisation's newspaper on Fublok. Later described as the greatest agitator of his generation, he also spent considerable amounts of time and energy campaigning for the rights of poor farmers and workers. He developed increasingly socialist views and as we saw in the last episode, he finally left the IRA in 1934 to establish a new explicitly socialist organisation, Republican Congress. This, however, ended in complete failure and by 1936 the remarkable career of Padre O'Donnell lay in ruins. His extraordinary political journey seemed to have run out of track. Ireland was becoming increasingly conservative and right-wing and there was little space for him or his ideas. It was this, in many ways, that had led the O'Donnells to Spain. However, in Sitges, outside Barcelona, Padre O'Donnell would not find the oasis of peace and quiet he was searching for. Instead, he would actually find the revolution he had always wanted, when he, as he put it, walked into the Spanish Civil War. Padre O'Donnell knew very little about Spain prior to his trip there in 1936. While the country's politics had increasingly featured in Irish newspapers after the victory of the left-wing Popular Front in the elections of February that year, the language barrier prevented any in-depth understanding of the depth of the crisis unfolding in the country. Now, this is covered in greater detail in episode one. However, when the O'Donnells arrived in Spain in early July, the country was on the verge of tearing itself apart. 
While he may not have understood the background to the tensions, O'Donnell couldn't but notice some of the underlying problems. The poverty that was fueling a deep resentment among the poor was something that shocked him. Even though he had direct experience of rural poverty himself, he would later reflect, The condition of the poorest peasants on tiny farms was depressed beyond anything I could have imagined. This was just one of the many factors breaking Spanish society into irreconcilable factions. The rural poor and industrialised working class wanted a revolution. The impoverished peasants and poor workers were joining two major trade unions, the anarchist CNT and socialist UGT, in huge numbers. By 1936, they had a combined membership of nearly 4 million, and many felt a revolution was imminent. On the other side, the powerful in Spanish society, the army, right-wing politicians, big business and landlords, had given up any interest in democracy and instead they coalesced around the idea of a coup d'etat, feeling the only way to preserve their interests was to establish a dictatorship and repress the revolutionaries. Throughout July, as the O'Donnells enjoyed the warm Spanish sun, rumours circulated and tensions grew. On July the 14th, the country was rocked by what was perhaps the most high-profile political assassination of that year so far. This had seen the prominent fascist Calvo Sotelo kidnapped and then executed by socialists in an act of vengeance for the murder of a popular socialist two days earlier. A coup, or possibly even a socialist revolution, now seemed imminent. Padre O'Donnell's holiday was about to come to a very abrupt end. In mid-July, the Spanish army had put a plan they had developed for a coup d'etat into action. It began in the Spanish colony of Morocco in North Africa. While Morocco was not strategically important, events there were integral to the success or failure of the coup. The best units of the Spanish army, the Foreign Legion, and the Moroccan recruits garrisoned there would be needed in mainland Spain if the army were to seize power. So in accordance with their plan, the coup would start with these units rising up in Morocco, crushing any potential resistance within 24 hours, which would then allow a rising to begin in mainland Spain the following day. However, the plan immediately encountered problems. Rather than beginning on the agreed date of July the 18th, it had to start early when it was clear that their strategy had been leaked. From the outset, the coup was brutal and bloody. Well-known trade unionists were executed on site in Morocco. Indeed, just under 200 people were slaughtered on the first night of the coup in what was a foretaste of what was about to be unleashed in Spain. It was clear that this would not be limited to a simple seizure of power. The army and their allies were going to exterminate their enemies and they had an extremely broad definition of what constituted an enemy. In what would prove to be a crucial moment of indecision and prevarication, the Spanish government did not realise the enormity of the crisis they were facing and failed to take action. The leadership of the revolutionary unions, the anarchist CNT and socialist UGT, approached the Prime Minister, Cazares Quiroga, offering him aid. However, Quiroga seemed to view the revolutionaries as the greatest threat and rebuffed their offers. The official government position was, the government states that the movement is confined to certain areas in the protectorate of Morocco and that no one, absolutely no one, on the mainland has joined this absurd venture. Indeed, in Catalonia, Padre O'Donnell remembered, the government assured the people that the revolt would be suppressed thoroughly and speedily. This was wishful thinking. As the army began to rise in revolt across mainland Spain, the government was paralysed. 
as the historian Anthony Bieber has pointed out, having been attacked by what was in effect its own spinal column, it more or less ceased to exist as a force in this situation. Indeed, the politicians were so out of touch with what was happening, they thought they could rely on the general Cuipo Delliano. However, he was in fact one of the main plotters and had already started an uprising in the key city of Seville. Meanwhile, the anarchist CNT and socialist UGT were growing increasingly fearful. They knew their members would be the ones to suffer most if the coup succeeded, and as politicians prevaricated, they began to take matters into their own hands. They declared a general strike on July the 18th, a tactic that had halted the last attempted coup in 1932. This meant literally everything from construction to transport ground to a halt. Nothing moved without the Union's permission. It was obvious that it was now the CNT and UGT, along with their allies in left-wing political parties, that stood between Spain and a dictatorship. What little power the Spanish government had totally evaporated. At four in the morning on July the 19th, Prime Minister Quiroga finally resigned. A second government collapsed within hours. The third government, to hold office in the space of a few hours, finally accepted reality, dissolved the Spanish army and issued orders to hand over weapons to the UGT and CNT. While the coup had begun in many cities across Spain, people waited with bated breath to find out what would happen in the main centres of power. In Madrid, General Miaja was loyal to the Republic, but at first refused to arm the CNT and UGT, only doing so when given a direct order. By the end of July the 19th, the possibility of a coup succeeding in the capital was dwindling, as the two trade unions now had possession of 60,000 rifles, although many were not really usable. When some of the army attempted to leave their barracks and seize control of Madrid, they were driven back by the workers. The coup would ultimately fail in the city. However, the plotters had always been dubious about their ability to seize Madrid. Indeed, events in Barcelona were key and it was there that Padre O'Donnell would be drawn into the civil war. The army had been confident that General Godet would carry the city and they even hoped that his troops from Barcelona might eventually help take Madrid. However, taking the city was by no means guaranteed. While Godet would start a rising in the city, there was no doubt that he was going to face a stiff opposition. The anarchist CNT had several hundred thousand members in Barcelona and the surrounding area. The socialist trade union, the UGT, while not as big, still had thousands of members as well. After they declared a general strike on July the 18th, Barcelona effectively shut down. However, like much of Spain, those resisting the coup were internally divided. The president of the Catalan parliament, Luis Campanche, refused to hand over weapons to the CNT. Knowing it was literally a do-or-die moment for their members, the CNT then began raiding isolated armories and ships carrying weapons in Barcelona harbour to arm themselves for the coming fight. The UGT, who organised the city dockers and had an in-depth knowledge of the comings and goings in Barcelona harbour, raided an explosives shipment and used it to manufacture homemade grenades through the night of July the 18th. In working-class neighbourhoods, the people began to erect barricades across the city. Padre O'Donnell remembered similar scenes in Sitges as the people prepared for war. Men rushed off helter-skelter. Those with nowhere to go milled around and cheered. Soon the armaments of the village swept into view. Old pistols, murderous bulldog revolvers, shotguns, swords, rifles. A group of workmen arrived in a car. Men standing on the footboard holding their weapons aloft. A youth riding on the bonnet. The first carload got an ovation, for it was more than a group of men. It was an idea, 
and it filled my own soul with laughter. It is always exciting to see widely separate people behave in a similar way in similar circumstances. And in our struggle in Ireland, we too had ridden joyously like this in borrowed motors. The coup finally began in Barcelona on July the 19th when soldiers finally began to leave their barracks to seize control of the city. The situation in the streets was eerie. Once they left their barracks, the factory sirens normally used to announce the end of a shift were set off to warn the population. As these wailed out across the city, the workers knew the moment of truth had arrived. The soldiers trying to take control quickly came under attack. The street barricades made their progress difficult while they were fired on from surrounding buildings. Often the population acted with nothing short of reckless bravery. In some instances, driving lorries at speed to crash through army installations in the streets. Eventually, they were able to drive the army back. After they captured artillery, the workers were able to force General Godet himself to surrender and he was made broadcast an announcement across radio which demoralised troops not only in Barcelona but in other cities as well. By July the 20th, the last holdout in the city, the Alcatranas barracks was stormed by the CNT ending the coup in Barcelona. Having failed to take control of Madrid, Barcelona and the industrial centre of Bilbao, as well as the mining district of Asturias and the rich agricultural districts of Aragon, there was no question that the coup had failed in its immediate objective to seize power. However, the army had not been completely defeated either. There was no doubt they had captured key areas. A huge swathe of country north of Madrid stretching from the Pyrenees Mountains on the French border to the Atlantic Ocean was in their hands. They also had taken a strategically very important tract of land stretching in an arc from the inland city of Cordoba to the port of Cadiz on the southern coast. This meant what had been planned as a short surgical strike at the heart of the Spanish government in the shape of a coup that would have lasted a matter of days or possibly weeks was clearly developing into what would be a protracted civil war. However, this developed unusual characteristics. A civil war had taken place in Ireland 15 years beforehand but had not attracted large-scale international involvement. This was hardly surprising given it was rooted in issues specific to Ireland. However, from the outset in Spain, the civil war was very different. The major camps could be identified along ideological lines, fascist and anti-fascist, left and right-wing, and this made the war appealing to individuals, political groups and even governments across the world. In Barcelona, Padre O'Donnell was gripped by these events. 
Between July 17th and July 20th, Pather and Lil O'Donnell's holiday had been transformed. In those three days, the government of Spain had ceased to exist, for all intents and purposes. While this was deeply unsettling for many, the O'Donnells had actually seen something like this before. During the Irish War of Independence, the government had more or less collapsed in 1921 as the IRA and the British Army struggled for control. Back then, the Republican movement had filled the void in many areas, performing the role of government and even establishing its own court system. However, in Spain, something very different had filled the void. Across Catalonia, the revolutionary trade unions, which had defeated the coup, particularly the CNT, stepped into the breach. They were, as the president of the regional government of Catalonia, Luis Campanch, admitted, the masters of Barcelona. They ushered in sweeping changes far beyond anything Padre O'Donnell had experienced in Ireland. The goal of the CNT was not just to change government. They set about altering the very fundamentals of society. They now reorganised the region along revolutionary socialist lines. With 400,000 members in Barcelona alone, they collectivised nearly all industry and immediately began turning over factories to war production. They also collectivised land across rural Catalonia, which surrounded Barcelona and Aragon, the province to the northwest. As this unfolded, Padre O'Donnell left the village of Sitges and moved into Barcelona to see for himself a city in the grip of a socialist revolution, something he had long tried to bring about in Ireland. The scenes he witnessed were extraordinary. Perhaps the most famous symbol of the revolution underway was the Ritz Hotel in Barcelona. Once a symbol of privilege, this had been converted into what was called the Gastronomic Unit 2, essentially a public kitchen where the militias were fed. There were several of these across the city, and Padre O'Donnell himself recalled, Young men with shotguns and revolvers walked into our hotel and told the proprietor how many men he would have to feed daily. However, it was really difficult to convey the profound changes underway. Among the many international visitors in Barcelona was the British socialist and the famous author George Orwell. He arrived in the city in December, a few months after Padre O'Donnell, and was equally impressed. The numerous references he makes in the following passage to red and black flags refer to the colours of the CNT. It was the first time that I had ever been in a town where the working class was in the saddle. Practically every building of any size had been seized by the workers and was draped with red flags, or with the red and black flag of the anarchists. Every wall was scrawled with the hammer and sickle, and with the initials of the revolutionary parties. Every shop and cafe had an inscription saying that it had been collectivised. Even the boot blacks had been collectivised and their boxes painted red and black. Waiters and shop walkers looked you in the face and treated you as an equal. Servile and even ceremonial forms of speech had temporarily disappeared. Nobody said senor or don or even usted. Everyone called everyone else comrade and thou and said salut instead of buenos dias. Almost my first experience was receiving a lecture from a hotel manager for trying to tip a lift boy. There were no private motor cars, they had all been commandeered and all the trams and taxis and much of the other transport were painted red and black. The revolutionary posters were everywhere. It was the aspect of the crowds that was the queerest thing of all. In outward appearance, it was a town in which the wealthy classes had practically ceased to exist. Except for a small number of women and foreigners, there were no well-dressed people at all. Practically everyone wore rough working-class clothes, or blue overalls, or some variant of the militia uniform. All this was queer and moving. There was much in it that I did not understand. In some ways, I did not even like it but I recognised it immediately as a state of affairs worth fighting for. 
Also, I believed that things were as they appeared, that this really was a worker's state, and that the entire bourgeoisie had either fled, been killed, or voluntarily come over to the worker's side. I did not realise that great numbers of well-to-do bourgeois were simply lying low and disguising themselves as proletarians for the time being. Although there were some shortages due to the war which led to queues at shops, Orwell explained that people were relatively content. There was no unemployment and the price of living was still extremely low. You saw very few conspicuously destitute people and no beggars except the gypsies. Above all, there was a belief in the revolution and the future, a feeling of having suddenly emerged into an era of equality and freedom. Human beings were trying to behave as human beings and not as cogs in the capitalist machine. In the barber's shops were anarchist notices. The barbers were mostly anarchists, solemnly explaining that barbers were no longer slaves. In the streets were coloured posters, appealing to prostitutes to stop being prostitutes. Orwell, as we have heard, had said that there was much he did not understand and some aspects he did not like about what was unfolding in Spain. The same was true for Padre O'Donnell. He, like many Irish revolutionaries, was a devout Catholic and this left him very uneasy about one aspect of the revolution unfolding in Spain. This was the reaction to the Catholic Church in anti-fascist areas. This would play a pivotal role in how the entire Spanish Civil War was perceived in Ireland. From the earliest stages of the coup, the Catholic Church had become a target for those resisting the attempts of the army to seize power. Attacks on church buildings had begun almost immediately. Churches were sacked and in many cases burned. On visiting Barcelona, George Orwell remembered, Almost every church had been gutted and its images burnt. Churches here and there were being systematically demolished by gangs of workmen. While some priests had openly supported the coup, the reasons for the outpouring of this hatred against the church ran far deeper than the events of 1936. Across Spain, the church was viewed as being representative of the traditional order trying to bring about a dictatorship. Specifically, in Catalonia, where Orwell and Padre O'Donnell experienced the war, tensions between the anarchist CNT, who were ardent atheists, and the Catholic Church went far beyond ideological or theological differences. As far back as 1909, the church was widely suspected as having been involved in the execution of the prominent anarchist Francisco Ferrer. In the 1920s, church leaders had been involved in the hiring of pistoleros or gunmen to kill CNT leaders and indeed anarchists had even assassinated the Archbishop of Zaragoza in 1923 in retaliation. However, Padre O'Donnell, a devout Catholic, was largely oblivious to the history of the Catholic Church in Spain and he was shocked by what he saw. In Sitges, he witnessed the local church in the village being sacked. The attack on the church was without justification. The village was in our hands so that there could have been no question of the church being used as a fascist post. The effect of the attack was also against the interests of the anti-fascist struggle in the village, as witnessed the silence of the great throng which, until now, cheered every new step taken. A steadily mounting rage was my main reaction, though I could not be quite sure whether my temper drew its heat from revolt against the dark backwardness of what was taking place, or from alarm at the bewilderment which such outrages must cause among Catholic masses who are sincerely anti-fascists. O'Donnell tried to rationalise this by saying it was a minority of the population involved. It was not the populace destroyed churches. The attacks were the work of a minority, which attracted to itself the derelicts of the slums. However, 
This does not really accurately represent what was happening. George Orwell's assertion that pretty much every single church in Barcelona had been sacked and in some cases they were being demolished indicated it was a much wider process than just what Padre O'Donnell called the derelicts of the slums. However, whatever misgivings Padre O'Donnell had about the animosity towards religion coming to the surface in Spain, this was superseded by the fact he was more impressed by the revolution underway. Although not an anarchist himself, Padre O'Donnell approached the newly formed press bureau run by the CNT. They had no one to write bulletins in English and he was given a press pass to do this work. Over the following weeks, he helped the CNT in their liaisons with the international press who were being drawn to Spain in increasing numbers. However, while Padre O'Donnell and the likes of George Orwell were in general highly impressed by what was happening in Spain, other Irish eyewitnesses were horrified and in some cases genuinely terrified, not least among them Alexander McCabe. By 1936, the Irish priest Alexander McCabe had spent well over a decade in Spain, having studied in the Irish College in Salamanca, a city to the northwest of Madrid. He had gone on to take over the position of rector in the college in the 1930s. Unlike O'Donnell, who had very little understanding of Spanish politics, McCabe was well versed in what was happening, having watched Spain slowly descend into the desperate situation it faced in the summer of 1936. However, even he was caught off guard when the coup d'etat finally took place in July. The Irish College of which he was rector always had a few dozen seminarians from Ireland training to be priests. While they spent their winters in Salamanca, each summer they travelled to Pendules, a small fishing village on the north coast of Spain where the college had a villa. Despite the fact that tensions were building through the summer of 1936, McCabe saw no reason to cancel the annual trip and the students went ahead to Pendulez. This would prove a fateful decision. While the students were to remain there over the summer, McCabe himself only stayed a few weeks before leaving for a holiday in Ireland. By chance, his date of departure was just a few days before the military rose in revolt. For the students and the vice-rector, another Irish priest called John O'Hara, who remained in Pendulous, the coup and the subsequent events that followed it placed them in grave danger. While Salamanca was taken by fascist rebels, Pendulous was very different. Located in the province of Asturias, the miners of the region had long been radical in outlook and they successfully resisted the coup. While the students were initially left alone in the days following the attempted coup, tensions began to rise in the fishing village of Pendulous. On one occasion, an anarchist militiaman fired shots at the vice-rector, Father John O'Hara, when he refused to return the left-wing salute of the clenched fist. For Alexander McCabe back in Ireland, this was deeply distressing. There was no question that the danger was very real. Over the course of the war, 13 bishops, over 6,000 priests and monks, and nearly 300 nuns were killed. While the students were increasingly harassed, the vice-rector John O'Hara, with the help of the British consulate in the port of Santander, was eventually able to organise passage on a boat out of Spain to Ireland. While they managed to return to Ireland safely, Alexander McCabe was actually preparing to travel back to the Irish College in Salamanca. As rector, he was concerned for the building, then lying idle. However, when he arrived back, he, just like Padre O'Donnell, would have to wrestle with his conscience given what awaited him. The side the Catholic Church were supporting were in fact committing far worse atrocities than anything that had happened in anti-fascist areas. 
Ultimately, there was never any question over where Alexander McCabe's loyalties lay. As a Catholic priest, he fully supported the coup. However, when he finally made it back to Salamanca in the autumn of 1936, he discovered that the reality of life in fascist-controlled areas was deeply disturbing. Newspapers across the world had extensively covered the destruction of churches in anti-fascist areas, while there had been very little emerging from behind the lines in fascist areas. This was not, though, because there was nothing to report, but rather because the army had instituted a brutal dictatorship where news was heavily censored. The scale of the violence underway was utterly shocking. In Salamanca, hundreds were being killed. Indeed, Alexander McCabe estimated fascists had slaughtered 1,300 people in Salamanca alone in about four months. This constituted 2% of the entire population. McCabe confided in his diary that They shot people by lorryfuls. They used to go to a village, for instance, drag out their victim, make him dig his own grave and then shoot him. Or they put the dead man in the middle of the road or into the lorry and ran over the corpse to iron it out properly. Much like Padre O'Donnell trying to understand the destruction of Catholic churches, McCabe tried to lay the blame on a minority within the fascist side when he said, The phalangists on this side seem to behave like the Reds on the other. This was false though in many ways. The killing in fascist areas was not just the action of the fascist party, the phalange, but was far more systematic. Also, the comparison to what was going on in anti-fascist areas was not accurate either. By November, the wave of murders in anti-fascist areas was beginning to recede. Indeed, within weeks of the beginning of the war, the leadership of the CNT, UGT and left-wing political parties had regained control, often taking ruthless measures against their own members who committed acts of violence without due reason or course. However, in areas under fascist control, the purge of their perceived enemies would continue for years. McCabe, in blaming the Falange, was presumably trying, at the very least, to emotionally distance himself from the darker side of the regime taking hold, because there was no question he would support it. Even if the Catholic Church had not come under attack, they would always have backed the coup. Indeed, in some areas, particularly Navarre, priests had been involved in street fighting. If there was any doubt who they would support, the position of the Catholic Church was crystallised in a letter issued in September by the Bishop of Salamanca, Pla y Daniel, who went as far as to call those involved in the coup as the celestial city of the children of God. However, it would be a mistake to see McCabe purely as a man just following orders. In the autumn of 1936, the army based their general headquarters in Salamanca and he worked as something of an interlocutor between the leading figures of the regime and the Irish people who arrived in Spain to support them. Increasingly, though, it was clear that Alexander McCabe and Padre O'Donnell saw the same war that was starting in Spain in very, very different terms. While Padre O'Donnell saw it as an anti-fascist struggle and a defence of a revolution, for Alexander McCabe it was more about defending the Catholic Church, and the difference between these two views of the Spanish Civil War would be key to understanding Irish involvement in the conflict in coming years. Before we conclude this episode, there's one final aspect of events that both Alexander McCabe and Padre O'Donnell bore witness to that would prove very, very important. This was the internal cohesion of both sides, which would have a huge bearing on the war as it developed. When Alexander McCabe arrived back in Salamanca, he was there to see the consolidation of leadership on the fascist side. At the start of the Rising, there had been no clear leader as such. However, General Francisco Franco had quickly emerged as the undisputed dictator 
after he easily sidelined potential rivals. This undisputed leadership of Franco would certainly give the fascists greater internal cohesion as the war developed. In the anti-fascist zone, a very different situation prevailed. Indeed, there were several competing movements vying for control. In Barcelona and much of Catalonia, the CNT were utterly dominant. In Madrid, the CNT shared influence with the socialist UGT while the Spanish government was slowly recovering power, while in the Basque country, the situation was very different again. There, the coup had been defeated in most areas. However, the victory had been won by the forces of the PNV, the Basque Nationalist Party. There were also numerous other smaller parties across Spain which had played a significant role. The most significant of these was Spain's Communist Party, who, although much smaller than the CNT or UGT, were starting to organise and display a ruthless determination to control the entire anti-fascist side. This would create untold problems and in time lead them into conflict with other anti-fascist organisations, particularly the anarchist CNT. Nevertheless, in spite of this, or perhaps because he wasn't entirely aware of it, Pather O'Donnell returned to Ireland in the late summer of 1936 inspired. Having spent decades fighting for a socialist revolution in Ireland and having given up all hope, he had by accident stumbled into one unfolding in Spain, and he was going to do everything he could to get Irish people to support this. In the next episode of Partisans, which will be out in January 2020, we will see two of our partisans, Pather O'Donnell and Aileen O'Brien, who we met in episode two, attempt to mobilise support in Ireland for the respective sides they supported. We will also see Hitler, Mussolini and Stalin enter the story as the situation in Spain escalates. Hopefully, I'll have a bonus show out before Christmas. But in case I'm not talking to you before then, I hope you all have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year. Thanks for all your amazing support through 2019. I'm already looking forward to 2020. Until then, Sloan. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.